With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's business time, baby. You are listening to Solo Monster Sounds Off. It's such good shit. Mama Monster. Conquered my home. You're like frightening a woman. Your behavior just hasn't been very oozy. Oh my God, we're only an hour in. Eric Bischoff is an idiot. We have two more hours of this. Maybe the single stupidest idiot that ever got into wrestling. Who writes this stuff? Bruce? Come over here and fight me. I'm the Sala Monster, damn it. <laughs> Welcome to episode 799 of the Sala Monster Sounds Off for Sunday, March 12, 2023. I am the Sala Monster. On what would have been Mae Young's 100th birthday. She passed away in 2014. When she was on WWE television, she was already well retired. Uh, I mean, she was so old, she remembered when the Dead Sea was just sick, as uh, Jerry Lawler once said. When, when David killed Goliath, Mae Young called the cops. And yet, as old as she was, I saw that woman take an angle slam from Kurt Angle... A hardcore Holly clothesline that almost took her head off. A splash from Viscera when she was pregnant, no less. She could have lost that hand. A powerbomb off the ropes by Bubba Ray Dudley through a table. And the next week, a powerbomb off the stage through two tables. She took more bumps at 80 years old than Brock Lesnar does today. She took more of a stage bump than Wardlow did on Dynamite this week. So, in honor of her 100th birthday... I thought I would uh, just share a few quick Mae Young facts with you. She had her three older brothers help train her for amateur wrestling in high school, and she actually won a spot on the boys' wrestling team. She was arrested and jailed several times in her younger years. In one incident, she allegedly was kicked in the face by a man and ended up sending that man and his wife to the hospital. And in another incident, she and a friend were arrested for beating up a guy and stealing a hundred bucks from him. She said that they were teaching him a lesson because of some improper advances that he had made towards them. She claimed to have wrestled in nine different decades, which nobody else in wrestling has ever done, even though there's no record of her having wrestled in the late 30s, as she claimed. But even still, she, she's got that record pretty well locked up. It's more like seven decades, if you don't count the handicap match on Raw back in 2010 where she beat Lay Cool, where they never even got into the ring. I remember that segment. I think that was one of those old school Raws, and I don't know how you could even really call that a match. She and Mildred Burke headlined the first ever women's wrestling tour of Canada in the early 40s, wrestling for Stu Hart, and they were also among the first women to ever wrestle in Japan in the early 50s, so in a way... She helped give birth, not just to a hand, but to women's wrestling in both Canada and Japan. She was named Ms. Royal Rumble in 2000 after winning a bikini contest and scarring me for life. She also dated Mark Henry in Storyline and gave birth to a rubber hand. And she is only the third woman ever inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame in 2008, 
Only Mula and Sherry Martell went in before she did. May always said that she planned on wrestling when she turned 100 years old and said that Vince McMahon and Stephanie McMahon promised her a match with Stephanie's oldest daughter, Aurora Rose. And she did not live long enough to get that match. But I have no doubt that if she was still alive, she would be fighting to get that match. And the only question is, would Triple H have his own daughter go over? Seems a little unfair to me that her dad is now the head of creative and her grandfather is roaming around backstage twirling his new mustache like he's Daniel Day-Lewis in Gangs of New York. If you want to support the podcast, you may do so making a uh, PayPal donation. On the solemnmonster.com, you'll see the PayPal link at the top of the link tree. $10 or more will get you a nickname. I want to do roll call here for our PayPal producers, including the Portland pop star, Paul Hamilton. He, he is indeed a star. I'll talk more about him in a second. Night Stalker, Nayef Alsafar, Big B, Brian Pissera, Killshot, Keith Hart, Velvet Revolver, Robert Murray, the Chicago Slayer, Willie Eichard, the Diamond Dallas Dance Machine, Harrison Soap. New York Punk, Arnold Modesto, John Raging Mad Riffle, he's still raging, Shin Superkick Akuma, Gabriel the Dirty Sanchez, Daredevil Doug Lippert, and Iowan Corn Farmer Jesse Lampier. You heard me talk about this several weeks ago, but it is finally here. Scoop This is officially back. Over 20 years ago, Scoop This was the onion of pro wrestling, or what kayfabe news is today. It's wrestling satire, wrestling parody. And now it is a digital magazine. The first issue is the black issue, and it is now available free for everyone at scoopthis.com. Credit to the Scoop This team. I was just lucky enough to be a sounding board for them throughout this entire process. Uh, They're big fans of the podcast. They heard me reminiscing one day about Scoop This, and that was the little push they needed to move ahead with an idea they already had in mind for this project. Uh, I think you're going to enjoy it. I know you're going to enjoy it. I know uh, Paul Hamilton, the Portland pop star, is going to get a kick out of it when he sees his name in print. There's a little Easter egg in there for you. So visit scoopthis.com to check it out. And give him a follow on social media as well. Scoop This is the handle on both Twitter and Instagram. I was at the House of Glory show on Friday night. With Glory Comes Pride. Uh, it was a fun show. Uh, I really wish it would have streamed live on Fight. Hopefully that'll be rectified next month and we can at least get this show up on the uh, Hog YouTube channel. With or without commentary. That's what I'm pushing for. I had uh, important commissioner business to tend to. Uh, although Charles Mason, the sick bastard, he survives another month as our crown jewel champion. Even with me banning his insurance policy from ringside before the match... Fair play to him. He still found a way to win. One of these days, though, his luck is going to run out. And as I said in the interview I did backstage before the show, we've got a lot of big things planned for House of Glory all the way through the summer. Some big names, some big matches. Mason, you know, I may not like the guy, but he and Alec Price, who's a young kid from the Northeast Independent scene, they had a hell of a match. We had Violet beating Max the Impaler to hold on to her HOG Women's Championship, although barely. Uh, Then coming back out later in the show and in a stunning betrayal, turning on Midas Black and Jay Lion and costing them the tag team titles they won from the Briscoes in Jay and Mark's final match together. The titles they spent half of last year chasing after. To lose them in the manner they did to the Bookers, Brian XL and Amazing Red was disgusting. 
Jacob Fatu retained his HOG World Heavyweight title over Fred Rosser, the former strong openweight champion, the former Darren Young, doing big things now in New Japan. One of my favorite parts of the match were the two fans holding up I acknowledge Fatu signs. He acknowledged them, and then he threw his finger high in the air, and everybody in the crowd put their finger up in the air. Can you imagine Fatu as part of this bloodline story? Like, I was mapping out this whole story in my head for when the time comes. They they bring Fatu in to replace Roman Reigns in the bloodline. They finally get sick of Roman shit, and they kick him out. Like, what a way that would be to introduce Fatu. But right now, we are very lucky to have him as our champion. And we had Kushida in for the first time, beating Loki in the main event. But maybe the most shocking part of the entire night is that Solomonster now has entrance music. <laughs> you know you've made it when you get entrance music. And uh, believe me, while I would have loved to have gone with some Hall and Oates, you know, coming out to a song called Out of Touch may not have been the best look for the commissioner. So I settled on Tooth and Nail by Foreigner, which is a great song. I, I wanted something that hits as soon as the song starts. It's got to hit right away. And uh, shout out to Webmaster Mike for the recommendation. I only had an hour to come up with something, so I went with it. Friday night, April 14th, that is our next show at the NYC Arena, so I hope I get to see some of you there. Alex Sherman of CNBC broke the news on Wednesday that WWE is in talks with state gambling regulators in Colorado and Michigan and they have already registered with the Indiana Gaming Commission to legalize betting on high-profile matches. The Colorado Division of Gaming told CNBC it is not currently considering and has not considered allowing sports betting wagers on WWE matches. A spokesperson noted that Colorado currently has a statute prohibiting wagers on events with a fixed or predicted outcome, including the Academy Awards. Nonetheless, WWE is working with the accounting firm Ernst & Young to secure scripted match results in hopes that it will convince regulators there is no chance of those results leaking to the public, according to people who ask not to be named because the discussions are private. The story states that accounting firms like the one WWE is working with have worked with award shows, including the Academy Awards and the Emmys, to keep results a secret. Betting on the Academy Awards is already legal and available through some sports betting apps, including FanDuel and DraftKings. Although most states don't allow it, WWE executives have cited the Oscars uh, Oscars betting as a template to convince regulators gambling on scripted matches is safe. Still, while Academy Awards voting results are known by a select few before they are announced publicly... They are not scripted by writers. Even if regulators allow gambling, betting companies would have to decide if they are willing to place odds on WWE matches, even if it is legalized. Those discussions have yet to occur at betting firms, according to people familiar with the matter. If WWE succeeds in its bid to legalize gambling on matches, it could open the door for legalized betting on other guarded secret scripted events like future character deaths in TV series. Allowing gambling on certain WWE matches would alter how the matches are produced and how storylines are created. In discussions about how gambling on wrestling could work, WWE executives have proposed that scripted results of matches be locked in months ahead of time. The wrestlers themselves would not know whether they were winning or losing until shortly before a match takes place. 
For example, the WWE could lock the results of WrestleMania's main event months ahead of time, based on a scripted storyline that hinged on the winner of January's Royal Rumble. Betting on the match could then take place between the end of the Royal Rumble and up to days or even hours before WrestleMania, when the results, or uh, when the wrestlers rather, and others in the show's production would learn the results. And at the very end of the story, uh, he said that WWE is set to meet with potential buyers for the company next month in preparation for first round bids. Now, Ari Emanuel this week of Endeavor again made a comment about a potential WWE acquisition. He indicated that they were not interested in taking on more debt, so that would seem to rule them out of the equation. Now, as far as this betting stuff goes, I know you can already bet on wrestling in the UK. That's been a thing for years. I don't know about other parts of the world. I'm sure it's not only in the UK. But the way they're talking about doing it here, locking in match results months in advance, you know, even if it's only for big matches, that sounds like an absolutely terrible idea. You know, under those conditions, the yes movement would have been a failure. And there would have been no Daniel Bryan win at WrestleMania 30. You know, they'd be locked into whatever their plans were months in advance with no ability to change things or else they could be in serious legal trouble. You know, they need to have the ability to make creative changes as needed, whether it's an injury that derails their plans or it's just a case where they decide they want to go in a different direction, you know, or the fans are dictating to them that they need to go in a different direction. That's the entire essence of what pro wrestling is. They don't always change their plans on a dime because of the fans. I mean, look at this whole Sami Zayn situation this year. But they've done it plenty of other times, right? You like knowing that they at least have the ability, they have the freedom if they want to be able to change plans, right? You listen to what works, you listen to what doesn't, and you adapt. That's what wrestling is. And that's to say nothing of wrestlers not being allowed to know the finish of their own matches until an hour or whatever it may be before showtime. That's ridiculous. You need to know who's going over and what the finish is going to be because it affects everything else they do in their matches. Now you're saying that everything is under lock and key and operating under this veil of secrecy that never existed before. You know, the talent, the producers who work with the talent and in in some cases help plan out match finishes, right? They would all be in the dark until right before the show. They would be all be in the dark. Would this include the Royal Rumble matches? Right? That would require them to have the winners decided upon months in advance without the ability to change the outcome. I mean, take this year's men's rumble as an example. They didn't know for sure that Cody Rhodes would be cleared in time until probably within a few weeks of the show. Cody himself said he didn't get officially cleared until he got to the building the day of the show. If they allowed people to gamble on the outcome of the rumble and they needed the winners locked in, you know, two, three, four months in advance, would they have been able to make Cody the winner, not knowing if he would be medically cleared? John Cena winning the Royal Rumble as a surprise in 2008. You can't tell me that decision wasn't made until close to the day of the show. Under these rules, that probably never would have been allowed. You know, like, like I know people have been betting on the Royal Rumble winners and WrestleMania matches in other countries for a long time, but not under these conditions. With, you know, outside firms involved and the company not being able to make changes if they want to or they need to. You know, you can bet on sports, you can bet on award shows. You know, in the article it said that it could open the door to betting on, like, deaths on TV shows. I thought that 
in certain countries and certain websites, you could already bet on things like that. Like certain character, whether it's deaths or, or something that's going to happen in like the season finale of a television show. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but I thought that in certain places you could already bet on stuff like that. You know, TV dramas are filmed months in advance. <laughs> it's not the same thing. You know, pro wrestling is is totally, it's just a totally different beast than any other sport, any other form of entertainment. Uh, what they're talking about doing, to me, it just doesn't sound practical. I don't see that as being a good idea. They They obviously see it differently because they see a way to make money. And if there's a way for them to make more money on it, then by God, that's what they're going to do. But if I were a wrestler in WWE and I'm hearing this, I, it's going to raise some eyebrows with me. At the very least, I would I would want some more clarity about how all this would work. WWE Backlash is coming to Puerto Rico on Saturday, May 6th with their native son, Bad Bunny, as the host of the show. It takes place from Coliseo de Puerto Rico, Jose Miguel Aguilat in San Juan. This will be their first pay-per-view in Puerto Rico since New Year's Revolution in 2005. That's 18 years ago. In a statement, Bad Bunny said, In 2005, when I was a kid, I wasn't able to attend New Year's Revolution at El Coliseo. Finally, 18 years later, WWE returns to the island with a massive event, and this time I won't miss it. They have not yet announced an on-sale date, but with the bunny on the show, I mean, it's guaranteed to be a shit show trying to get tickets. If that thing doesn't sell out in less than an hour, I would be shocked. Uh, This continues a trend of WWE doing more shows outside of the uh, mainland U.S., right? They had Clash at the Castle last September in Cardiff, Elimination Chamber last month in Montreal. In May alone, they've got Backlash in Puerto Rico and then King and Queen of the Ring in Saudi Arabia. And don't forget, we got Money in the Bank at the O2 in London coming up in July. In the Observer, there was a note that the state government of Western Australia is negotiating with WWE to run a major stadium show there, uh, likely in Perth. I like it. I like it. It makes for a fun atmosphere for these shows when they go over to these places that don't typically get a big show. Uh, The people are just rabid for it. For Bad Bunny, it's his first WWE event since last year's Royal Rumble match. Uh, Before that, he wrestled one time. At WrestleMania 37, he was in a tag team match with Damian Priest against The Miz and John Morrison. There was talk a few months ago about them running a pay-per-view in Puerto Rico. In fact, uh, one of the... might have been... might have been War Games, actually. might have been Survivor Series. I don't remember, but I know Issa, uh, NYC Demon Diva. She was part of one of the post-show press conferences that that Triple H now does after the pay-per-views. And she had asked a question about that, and I think she may have... She may have mentioned Puerto Rico specifically, and Triple H almost gave like a wink and a nod, like, you know, wait and see. So you could kind of tell even then a few months ago that they had something in the works, and there was a rumor that there might be a show in mid-January with rumors that, you know, Bad Bunny could be in a tag team match with Rey Mysterio, maybe against Dominic and Damian Priest. If he's not wrestling on the show, if he's just hosting, he's maybe he'll be a referee or something, but if he's not wrestling on the show... Uh, they could still do, you know, Ray and Santos Escobar tagging against the Judgment Day. I discussed that very idea during my SmackDown review last week before I even knew the show would be in Puerto Rico. That they could do that match at Backlash. Priest was raised there. 
You know, the first wrestling he ever saw was Carlos Colon's promotion. That's how he became a fan. Uh, one thing WWE has been very good about in the last several months when they come into these places is coming in with a big main event built around someone with a big local following. They did it with McIntyre at Clash at the Castle, Sami Zayn in Montreal, even though neither of them had a happy ending. So we'll see. Yeah, that's why you know, having someone like Priest in a big tag team match in the main event would, would make a lot of sense. And maybe that wouldn't be the main event. Maybe that wouldn't be the main event. If they're going to have all their talent on that show, maybe it's not the main event, but it would be one of the big matches on the show. But I was going to say, you know, that island has been through the ringer uh, with some hellacious storms in recent years. So it's cool to see them getting a pay-per-view uh, after so many years. I didn't realize it had been 18 years since that New Year's Revolution show. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. There was a familiar face, a familiar melting face backstage at Raw on Monday. Vicente McMahon said to be sporting a mustache. According to those who saw him, a real photo of this has yet to be leaked, although there have been some really good photoshops. Vince McMahon was backstage for the first time since resigning in disgrace last July. Per Fightful, the people backstage believed he was there simply to visit John Cena, who he remains very close with. He is said to have visited with Cena several times outside of WWE over the past year. I know Cena was at Vince's uh, birthday dinner in the city last summer because TMZ filmed them when they came out of the restaurant. Fightful reported, There were a few talents that said they intentionally avoided associating with him, despite them believing that they will likely have to deal with him in the future. Oh, they will. They will. One WWE higher-up felt personally as if this was also a case of McMahon testing the waters of showing his face at WWE events to see how the talent and staff would react. Now that he has been back, many expect him to be at other upcoming events. And the report says that McMahon was at the gorilla position throughout the night and was not shy about saying hello and greeting talent. However, none of the talent or staff we spoke to said that he was providing instructions, feedback, or orders to anyone that they saw. The discussion in the locker room was that Vince was there simply to visit John Cena and enjoy the show with them believing he came there specifically because Cena was booked. There did not seem to be a lot of panic, at least based on those we heard from. One talent said the big tell will be if he is at SmackDown. And I have not seen any reports that he was backstage at SmackDown, so I don't know for sure, but there's been no reporting to indicate that he was there on Friday. Talent and staff were not prepared for McMahon to be around and were not briefed about the situation before or after. 
There were several higher-ups in the company that also were not made aware until he was there, with one noting that they wish they would have been clued in, considering the nature of the last nine months in WWE. Well, the man still owns the company, so he can pretty much do whatever the hell he wants, as he demonstrated when he forced himself back in. But uh, this was my favorite part of the Fightful report, more than even what Vince was doing there or what it meant for the future. His appearance was heavily discussed. One person in WWE who has known Vince for 20 years said that it was more drastic and more of a shock than him getting his head shaved at WrestleMania. There have been numerous fake photos on social media circulating of Vince's new look. Thus far, no real ones have emerged. He was seen sporting a mustache backstage, but not just any mustache, a creepy little mustache. As amusing as this all is, let us not forget, the man spent $20 million that we know of in hush money to various women and had them sign non-disclosure agreements. And at least some of that money was not reported properly, was not reported at all, when it was supposed to be, which got the company in hot water with federal prosecutors and the SEC. All because he couldn't keep it in his pants. That's to say nothing of the fact that he should have stepped down from creative years ago. So when we start hearing stories about Vince McMahon showing up backstage three weeks before WrestleMania, there's good reason to be concerned. He wasn't just there to visit with John Cena, he was sitting in Gorilla all night. That's how it starts. Yes, that's exactly as one person who was back there said. It felt like he was testing the waters. You don't think he had an ulterior motive? I'm sure he did visit with Cena. You think that's the only reason he showed up there? This is not going to be the last time we hear about something like this. I don't care if he's back there with a porn stash, a mohawk, and a Cody Rhodes tattoo on his neck. If Vince McMahon is sniffing around, that cannot lead to anything good. But I got one more Vince McMahon story for the day. This is more lighthearted. But another Vince story. This one is kind of humorous when you try to picture this conversation in your head. Zelina Vega was a guest on the I Hear Voices podcast a few weeks ago, which interviews uh, voiceover artists. Will Friedell is one of the hosts. He played Corey's brother Eric on Boy Meets World. Zelina is part of the upcoming commentary team for the Street Fighter VI video game. Uh, that comes out in June. I don't think I have played a Street Fighter game since Street Fighter 2 Turbo. But the videos that I have seen for this new one look incredible. Anyway, uh, she's talked about how much she loves video games. Video games and anime are her two passions. And how uh, Naruto is her favorite anime. In fact, she was just in Japan last week as a presenter for the Crunchyroll Anime Awards. She told a story on the podcast about the time that she had to explain Naruto to Vince McMahon. She said, the way I had to explain uh, Madara, who is one of the characters, to Vince, was my favorite thing in the world. I told him, well, I want Neil Kaplan, who is the English voice of Madara, to do my entrance for the Royal Rumble. And Vince was like, why? Well, he's the voice of Madara, Madara Uchiha. And he said, who's that? I was like, okay, uh, do you know what Crunchyroll is? He's like, yes, a su- <laughs> yes, a sushi. I said, no, 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 R- roll it back in here. So Crunchyroll is like the Netflix of anime. 
And he's like, okay, I get that. So Naruto is like the WWE of anime. He's like, okay, I like Naruto. This is good. And she said, Madara is kind of like what Paul Heyman is to Roman. And then he was like, okay, we need it. I love that at first mention of Crunchyroll, he thought of sushi. I, I can imagine her thinking, oh boy. Oh boy, I've got to really explain this to him in a way that he's going to understand. But it was smart of her to break it down to him the way that she did. You got to, you know, you got to talk to the guy in his own language. But that's where all that's where the all hail soundbite came from at the start of her old Queen Zelina entrance music. And now they went and gave it to Charlotte Flair. <laughs> now she has it for her entrance every time she comes out. She stole Neil Kaplan's voice away from Zelina Vega. But I would I would like to think that Vince spent the last seven months sitting at home watching anime until he just finally snapped and forced himself back onto the board. He just couldn't take it anymore. Raw on Monday was in Boston. John Cena wrapped up filming for the movie that he was doing in Australia, which is why he was able to be there live. And he was already on set that same day filming another movie before Raw. We got the expected face-to-face with him and Austin Theory to set up their match for WrestleMania, which will be for the United States Championship. Cena verbally castrated this man. In the same week that A&E aired its Rivals episode on the Rock-Cena feud, and when I watched the footage back of their segments, I don't know that I fully appreciated at the time how much better Cena was than The Rock in a lot of those promos. Uh, but here in this segment, Theory made fun of Cena's bald spot, and Cena said that he would much rather be bald than have them pipe in fake crowd noise for his matches. Now that's not really a knock on Theory, it's a knock on the company, because they pipe in fake noise for about 90% of their segments these days. If Cena was still active, they would pipe in fake noise for him too, just because they can. Not, not that he needs it, but just because they can. They manipulate the reactions to their desired effect every single week. They do it with everybody. They do it with the Bloodline segment sometimes. But he called Theory a dumb son of a bitch. And then he said, if you and I have a match at WrestleMania and I win, you lose everything. You're done. And if Theory wins, he still loses everything. Because then he has to go out the Monday after all by himself in front of that rabid, critical crowd of fans. And they're going to eat him alive. So basically, Cena said, if you if you lose, then you're done. And if you win, then you're done. So it's a no-win situation for Austin Theory. By the way, those post-WrestleMania crowds, they don't really exist anymore. They Certainly not the way they used to be. But he wished Theory luck, and he said, we all know you don't have it here. And he pointed to his head. You don't have it here. And he pointed to his heart. And you don't have it here. And he smacked him in the crotch. Cena said, you really need to work on that last one. Then he walked all the way to the stage, turned around and said, in no way, shape, or form are you ready for the WrestleMania stage. But Boston deserves to see someone that is. And he brought out Cody Rhodes for the big endorsement. And that was a cool moment because I remembered the question that I had asked Cena at the WrestleMania press conference in Miami. Uh, This was before, like a few hours before he had that first match with The Rock. right? Once in a lifetime, which... Later became just kidding, twice in a lifetime. And I played the video on the stream the other night. I asked him if there were any young talents on the roster or anyone coming up that he would like to work with, that he sees potential in. And the first name out of his mouth was Cody Rhodes. And that was in 2012. Here we are 11 years later with Cena giving him his flowers and Cody is about to get his first WrestleMania main event. But on the theory stuff, you know, he he embarrassed him. 
He embarrassed him. And the worst thing that you could do is tell the world that nobody cares about you. That was one of the key things he kept repeating in his promo about theory. Nobody cares. Especially when you're a champion in the company. Theory, you know, he's not some random schmo. He's the United States champion. He's the de facto top champion right now on Monday Night Raw. We just had an entire Elimination Chamber match built around Austin Theory as the United States champion defending the title, and he won. And Cena is out there saying, nobody cares. They pipe in fake crowd noise for you because nobody cares about you. You're a son of a bitch. You've got no brains. You've got no heart. You've got no balls. I mean, he he went in on this man so hard, they, they basically spoiled the result of the match at WrestleMania. Because there is no way that John Cena says those things unless he is putting theory over. And I think the title being on the line kind of gives the match result away anyway. But there's no way that theory can go out there after that shellacking and lose. For all the complaints from fans over the years about how John Cena buries people, you know, that word gets thrown around far too much. But if John Cena beats Austin Theory at WrestleMania after what we saw in that segment, it would be the greatest burial of John Cena's career. It would be such a magnificent burial, it would be worthy of its own Hall of Fame induction. I don't have a problem with him casting Theory as somebody who can't hang, who, who's in over his head, he isn't ready for the spotlight. You know, the idea that he's not on Cena's level. He's not. He's not on Cena's level. In storyline, he's not. Cena is a 16-time world champion. Theory has not won any world titles. Cena has five WrestleMania main events to his name. Theory has theory has none, which, by the way, that <laughs> that five WrestleMania main event sounds actually very low, uh, considering how long Cena was around on top four. I think Roman Reigns already has him beat. Or tied. I, I haven't looked up how many Roman has had so far. I mean, Roman... I guess Roman's first would have been 31, right? 32, 33, 34, 37. Yeah, he's already got him beat. Roman already has Cena licked, but Cena had five WrestleMania main events to his name. Theory has none. He does not have the credentials that John Cena has. He's only 25 years old. He hasn't been around for that long. But if Theory beats him, it means something. It might not mean as much as it used to. Cena's 45 years old with a bald spot. He's not as good in the ring as he used to be. Based on his last couple of matches, Cena has definitely lost a step. It's not the same John Cena, but it'll still be the biggest win of his life. And Cena will do the honors for Theory as he did for Roman Reigns the first time they met in 2017. And it was the same thing where John Cena went on television when they had their first face-to-face and he made Roman look silly. On the microphone, he totally outclassed him. It's it's almost like it's his way of, of testing people. It's his uh, initiation for them. But when the match came, he did what he was supposed to do. And he will again at WrestleMania. Now, I didn't get to do my usual SmackDown review on Friday, but I did watch the show. We got the follow-up to the excellent closing angle on Monday where Jey Uso betrayed Sami Zayn. And sided with his brother. Interestingly, not with the bloodline. He made it a point to talk about Jimmy only. So they are leaving open the issues between Jay and Roman, who was not on the show Friday when I I could have sworn he was supposed to be. I like Jay's explanation for why he did what he did. You know, he did it because he had to. He didn't want to do it, but he didn't have a choice. He never had a choice because Jimmy is his blood. He's his twin. He's his family, not Sami Zayn. 
He said Sammy was going to let his brother get clipped, which was funny. All Sammy had to do was fall in line. And again, it's all about the way that Roman Reigns has manipulated this man since day one. Jay only did it because Roman was threatening harm to his brother. When Roman said that, it was it was a message to Jay to fall in line when he said what he said last week. It's all about what got Jay to join up with Roman in the first place. Family. It's Jay's Achilles heel. And Roman continues to exploit that. Three years later. It's why I think coming out of WrestleMania, this Roman and Jay story is only going to continue until Jay finally does break away and will eventually get another Roman Reigns-Jay Uso match. They said the only problem that remains now is their Cody Rhodes problem. And Cody came out, big reaction. Uh, you guys answer to Roman Reigns, he says, but I don't. I answer to them. I answer to the people. And Sami Zayn attacked the Usos from behind. Cody joined in. We ended with Cody and Sami sending them both packing. If we get Cody and Sami against the Usos this week on TV, which I think we might, you know, they've got Solo Sokoa to back them up. That could be where Kevin Owens comes into the equation to even the odds. And we end up with the eventual tag team title match. Now, during my Raw review on Monday, I mentioned the fact that, because they're still having Kevin Owens say, I don't want to have anything to do with you. I want you to leave me alone. I'm not interested in teaming with you to take down the bloodline. And Cody, you know, getting kind of getting involved in this whole thing. My My thought process was Cody will end up being the sort of mediator in all of this that helps bring Sammy and KO back together. I didn't even notice when I made that comment, didn't even notice that during the uh, backstage segment with Elias and Rick Boogs, in the background, and Triple H has done this a lot since he took over, these little Easter eggs in the background that they don't draw any attention to, but every segment matters because you never know what may be going on in the background. You could see Cody, I think, having a conversation with Kevin Owens. And I didn't even notice it when I was reviewing the show. But that only backs up my theory that that's the role, I think, the role of Peacemaker, I think, that Cody is going to end up playing in all of this. So uh, we'll keep an eye on that. But as I expected and was hoping they would do, we had a disputed finish, a controversial finish to the Fatal Five way for a number one contender spot for Gunther's Intercontinental title with Drew McIntyre pinning LA Knight at the same time that Sheamus pinned Xavier Woods who replaced Kofi Kingston in the match. Kofi suffered an ankle injury last week. It was a fluke thing on Drew's dive out to the floor when they all caught him. Uh, something happened to his ankle. I don't know if it was fractured. I don't know if it was just badly sprained. I don't know exactly what the injury is, but Meltzer is saying he's not going to need surgery for it, but he is going to be out for about five weeks, which means that he is missing WrestleMania. He was part of a panel with Undertaker and Rhea Ripley at South by Southwest uh, this week. And he was in a walking boot with crutches. So he's going to be out for at least a few weeks. Gunther told Adam Pierce later in the show, I said I wanted a challenger. Singular, not challengers. Plural. And Pierce agreed. He said this Friday, we're going to work this out. It's going to be Drew and Sheamus one-on-one. And the winner of that match will get you for the Intercontinental title. I never thought I would say this, but I look forward to the double disqualification. Or the double countout or the draw. One of those three, because I still don't think we're getting a decisive winner. And I think we are going to get that triple threat match at WrestleMania. The fans were chanting triple threat at the end of the Fatal Five-Way when we had all the confusion. They see where this is going. 
I would even be okay with them flipping a coin, Luger and Brett style, from 94 to see who wrestles Gunther on night one, with the other man getting the champion on night two. But I think a triple threat match with those three could steal the show. Easily. Easily. And right now, if we assume that, you know, that's going to be a match on night one, and we don't know that, but let's say it's going to be on night one of Mania, it's, it's second only to the tag team title match as matches that I think should headline that first night. The women's title match with Rhea and Charlotte, that's dead last out of the top three possibilities. And they did not do anything on Friday to get me to change my mind. Charlotte had a match with Shotzi. And wow. Yikes. Is all I can say. I don't know what it is with Shotzi. She moves like she's in slow motion. It's like taking a YouTube video... And you can lower the speed. That's what it's like. I don't get it. You know, Charlotte looked like she had to slow herself down so Shotzi could keep up with her. Not that Charlotte looked uh, great in this match either. But just, this was was bad. This was bad. That's That's now Charlotte and Ronda both who have had terrible matches with Shotzi. And I mean, at some point you have to look at it and see, you know, that there's a common denominator here. We did get a face-to-face promo with Charlotte and Rhea when the match was over, but it was it was paint-by-number stuff. You know, with each passing week, I'm looking forward to the match itself, but with each passing week, it's becoming more and more obvious what the WrestleMania main event on night one should be. And it is not Charlotte Flair against Rhea Ripley. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff that is why i'm such a big fan of chumba casino chumba casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere with daily bonuses that should brighten your day a little actually a lot so sign up now at chumbacasino.com that's chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus and we finally got our first inductee announced for the 2023 hall of fame and it is a name that nobody was speculating. I did not hear a single person mention this guy's name because he is still on the active roster. Rey Mysterio is going into the Hall of Fame, and that is a well-deserved induction. The greatest luchador of all time, according to WWE. If he isn't the greatest, he's on the short list. No pun intended. For all that he's accomplished outside of, of Lucha Libre, at, at his size, a star in ECW, a star in WCW, a star in WWE, which may have been the most impressive thing, that Vince would have pushed someone of his size all those years ago when he pushed him to the levels that he did. You know, a world champion in WWE, one of the worst world title runs of all time, but a world champion nonetheless. Uh, the number of careers that he's influenced, the longevity that he's been able to have, still flying around and doing the things that he does with those knees at 48 years old. If that isn't a Hall of Famer, I don't know what is. 
Hulk Hogan posted a video pushing Ray as a a Hall of Famer because he's a great husband and a great father. I think Dominic would disagree with that last point. But I just love the idea that as a great husband and a great father, he belongs in the Hall of Fame. If the criteria for the Hall of Fame was being a good husband and a good father, at least half the names in that Hall of Fame would be gone. But the real reason that Hogan recorded the video was to push for the Rougeau brothers, Jacques and Raymond, to be the next inductees. And he said that uh, he's got a really good feeling about this one. It came off to me like he knows they're already going in. Maybe Jacques even asked Hogan to do the induction, and Hogan agreed. That That's kind of how it sounded like to me. Uh, Jacques is one of the very few people that Hogan did a clean job for during his Hollywood Hogan run. There was a show at the Bell Center in Montreal where they just had Elimination Chamber last month. That Jacques promoted. I don't think it was a WCW show, uh, but he was able to get a bunch of WCW stars on the card. And it wasn't televised, but they had a pretty big crowd. I I think they had almost 10,000 people in the building. Hulk was the WCW champion at the time, leading the NWO. I I mean, this was during those like hot early days of his Hollywood Hogan run. And he laid down and did a clean pinfall job for Jacques Rougeau. Jacques pinned the WCW champion. So that makes two wild things that happened in that building in Montreal in 1997. But Conan is going to be doing the induction for Mysterio, which is really the name that makes the most sense. You know, he first met Ray when Ray was 11 years old and Conan was starting to train with Ray's uncle. Uh, Conan opened doors for him that might never have been opened otherwise. He helped get Ray into WCW, which eventually led to his run in WWE. So Ray came out on the show to speak. He was immediately interrupted by the Judgment Day. So they are working his induction into the angle with Ray and Dom. You know, one thing you cannot say about Ray is that he is not going all out to do everything he possibly can to help get his son over. Uh, Dominic wanted a face-to-face in the ring. He called him a deadbeat dad. He said that he should have been Eddie's son. I mean, that line cut deep. Ray told him to take that back, but he wouldn't. And again, he told Ray, hit me. And Ray wouldn't do it, so Dom shoved him down, and when he went to go take another cheap shot, Ray ducked, and Dom went flying through the ropes out of the ring, and Ray told him, I'm not going to fight you, ever. And Dominic said, you will. Yeah, I was I was thinking they might wait until the Hall of Fame and have Dom crash Ray's induction before he finally accepts, but the Hall of Fame airs after the final SmackDown before WrestleMania, like 24 hours before, less than 24 hours. I mean, there would be no time on television to promote the match, so that doesn't really work. I don't know what it's going to be that finally gets Ray to change his mind, unless they can get Conan on TV for an angle where the Judgment Day is threatening to to kill him, and that gets Ray to accept. Uh, I don't know what they're going to do. So it's going to be a big weekend for Ray, going into the Hall of Fame on Friday, wrestling his son that weekend. The question is, does this mean that Ray is retiring? I'm seeing some people speculating that, you know, thank you, Ray, I guess this is it for Ray doesn't necessarily mean he's retiring. I mean, there's people in the Hall of Fame who are still actively wrestling. In fact, another one of them will be on the WrestleMania card this year in Edge. Uh, although at the time, he was retired. They thought he was done. But I don't think this necessarily means Ray is retiring, unless they add a stipulation, which they could very well do, because the match hasn't even been announced yet. If they add a stipulation that if Ray loses, he has to retire. And then he could have his own son be the one to retire him. I hope not. I still want to see Ray against Santos Escobar, at least, you know, once in WWE before he retires. 
But the idea of his son being the one to retire him, it may be too good for him to pass up. You know, he's almost 50 years old. How much longer does he think he can go? How much longer does he want to go for? Or is this situation the perfect scenario that may never present itself again, right? Because of injuries and creative changes and the the company might be sold soon. You never know what the future holds. You're going into WrestleMania. You're probably going to have a match with your son. There may never be another opportunity like this where you can have your son retire you on the biggest possible show in front of the biggest possible audience. It might be appealing for Ray, but I don't think it necessarily means that he's done. Speaking of WrestleMania, Wrestle Votes, in an interview with the website Give Me Sport, says that next year WWE is planning to pack and stack the hell out of the WrestleMania card because it is the 40th anniversary, and that means something to Triple H. And they noted that the door is open for both Rock and Stone Cold to appear and possibly wrestle on the show. How is that even news, by the way? The door is always open for them to appear or wrestle on the show. They tried to get both of them to wrestle on this year's show, and they both said no. We're going to go through this every year until they croak. Austin rejected matches with Roman Reigns and Brock Lesnar. The two biggest possible names they could have put him in the ring with. He said no. He got to end his career in Dallas, where he started it in the main event with a win. That's not a bad way for him to go out. So he wants to pack and stack the card. Look, hey, the status of Kenny Omega and the Young Bucks and MJF looms large. Omega against AJ Styles, that would be a hell of a WrestleMania match. They could do Brock Lesnar and Gunther on next year's show. Goldberg wants his retirement match. You have Braun Breaker retire Bill Goldberg. You know, one thing that somebody pointed out to me, and it's true, every 10 years, they have the smaller, really good in-ring worker, the workhorse, go over in the WrestleMania main event. At WrestleMania 10, it was Bret Hart. At WrestleMania 20, it was Benoit. At WrestleMania 30, it was Daniel Bryan. So who's the workhorse that's going over in the main event of WrestleMania 40? Got Gargano. People would laugh at that right now and scoff because they've done uh, nothing with him on the main roster. Could it be Gargano? Could it be Gable? Right? I was just talking up Chad Gable last week in some of the matches he's been having recently. Giving him his props. Sami Zayn. Maybe he gets his moment next year in Philly. I'm just saying. You know, the pattern, if, if if the pattern continues, who is that person going to be? Let's talk about AEW. Andrew Zarian of the Mat Men podcast is reporting that AEW and Warner Brothers Discovery are close to a deal to add a third AEW show to the schedule. Fourth, I guess if you count the all-access reality show that is uh, debuting later this month. Counting that, if you count all-access, that would make five hours of weekly television for AEW, right? you got two hours of Dynamite, one hour of Rampage. One hour of All Access and then one hour of this show. Plus, Dark and Dark Elevation on YouTube. The new show would be an hour long, like Rampage. And rumors have been circulating that the show could air at 6pm on Saturdays. Very similar to the old WCW Saturday Night Show that used to air at 6.05 on TBS. Although Zarian could not confirm that. Uh, Right now, that last part is just a rumor. To look at social media every week, when the Dynamite and Rampage ratings come in, you would think that they're about to be canceled and go out of business. 
And yet Warner Brothers Discovery keeps giving them more hours of television. It's almost as if these people have no idea what they're talking about. With all the talent that Tony Khan has under contract, having an extra hour of television, if it is just a one-hour show, not a, not a two-hour show, it's not a bad thing if he can give people a reason to watch the show. That's not a bad thing. If they really wanted to get people to care about Rampage, it would make more sense to take that extra hour and make Rampage a two-hour show live on a different night because 10 to 12 would be a death spot and they can't go earlier than that because they'll be head-to-head with SmackDown, which is also a death spot for them to be in. You know, a two-hour live Rampage on Thursdays, I think, would make the most sense. Ring of Honor drops on Thursdays, but it's on Honor Club. I mean, they could drop that any day they want. One thing they do not need to be doing is adding a third hour to Dynamite, which is a terrible idea that should not even be discussed. I don't know that I would watch this new show on Saturdays because I already have my fill of wrestling for the week. I'm I'm good. I really don't need any more wrestling. I, I mean, as it is, I'm watching seven hours of WWE every week, three hours of AEW, now two hours of Ring of Honor, that's not counting pay-per-views, plus the House of Glory stuff that I do. That, that That's enough wrestling for me. But if there's an audience for the show and people who want, they just want to consume as much AEW as possible, then it's great. It's great news for you, and it's great news for AEW, because it is another example of Warner's commitment to the brand, and a healthy AEW is great news for everyone. It is great news for wrestling. Last month, they trademarked the name AEW Collision, specifically for the purposes of using it as the title of a new show. So my guess is that that would be the name of the new show. But they also trademarked All Elite Women last August. Maybe it's the all-women show that Tony Khan has said he wants to do. Even as recently as last week, he said he wants to do the show and he hopes it gets picked up. Maybe it's a studio show. Primetime wrestling style where they pitch it to a handful of matches every week. It could be anything. Andrew says the announcement should come within the next month. Per The Observer, Tony Khan is working on signing Kenny Omega and the Young Bucks to new long-term contracts well before they become free agents at the end of the year. As he should. Tony Khan should be doing everything he can to keep them. Imagine losing all four of your EVPs to WWE. The founding fathers of your promotion. Omega especially, he should be trying to lock him down right now. You know, what a coup for Triple H though. If Omega becomes a free agent right before the Royal Rumble and WrestleMania season, WrestleMania 40. 40 is how old Omega will be come WrestleMania next year. So this next deal he signs, depending on how long it is, could be his last. You never know. On Dynamite Wednesday, Orange Cassidy beat Jay Lethal in their third meeting to retain the AEW All-Atlantic Championship before Jeff Jarrett attacked Cassidy after the match and left him laying. And now Jeff Jarrett is getting a championship match with Cassidy on television this week. This will be the second AEW championship that Jeff Jarrett has wrestled for in less than two weeks. Stick him in the ring with Jamie Hayter and let's see what happens. But later in the show, Tony Khan was back with another major announcement. This time to let us know that the All-Atlantic Championship will be defended on international soil this Wednesday in Winnipeg. But it will be under a different name. It will no longer be the All-Atlantic Championship in partnership with Warner Brothers Discovery. And there you go again. 
Right? I just got done talking about this possible new television show. Here yet again. More synergy with uh, Warner Brothers Discovery. That can't be anything but a good thing for AEW. But he said, in partnership with Warner Brothers Discovery to support the release of the new movie Shazam! Fury of the Gods, it will be Orange Cassidy against Jeff Jarrett for what is now going to be the AEW International Championship. He said AEW is leveling up. Now the backstory to this is that Warner Brothers Discovery asked them to do something big to help promote their new Shazam movie. And Tony Khan came up with the idea to level up the championship and change the name. He had a new belt made months ago in preparation for this, so this was not a recent decision that was made. They've had this plan for a while. They also wanted to do something special for the Winnipeg show, and so this is what they came up with. And really, it's harmless. I don't care what the title is called, personally, and it can never be a bad thing for them to make the network happy at a time when they're hoping for a big rights increase later this year. The All-Atlantic title has actually been booked better than the TNT title has. The TNT title has bigger stars competing for it. Darby and Joe and Wardlow. But the bipolar booking has just killed whatever prestige that belt may have still had. And speaking of the TNT title, we have a new TNT champion. For the second time in a 24-hour period, Wardlow lost the TNT championship. That is a record. That is not a record I think he wanted to set. But after he beat Samoa Joe for the belt at Revolution, his car was broken into in San Francisco, which is like a rite of passage over there. I get the impression that you haven't really experienced San Francisco until you've had your car broken into. And whoever broke into his car stole the title belt along with the rest of his gear. And then on Dynamite the next night, because he had no gear, they turned his match with Powerhouse Hobbs into a false count anywhere street fight that Hobbs won when QT Marshall hit Wardlow with a chair, and the two of them gave Wardlow a spine buster off the stage, a full foot off the stage, onto what looked like a cardboard crash pad. Now, I don't think it was actually cardboard, but it may as well have been. And Wardlow was unable to get back up before the 10 count. I hated how they did it, but I'm happy to see Hobbs win gold for the first time. Having QT Marshall be the one to help him win it is very suspect. Now, I saw the very... Heated exchanges on Twitter between QT and Raj Giri. And QT even challenged Raj at one point to sign a waiver and get in the ring with him at the Nightmare Factory so that he could kick his ass. All because, from, from what I could see, and maybe something Raj you know, posted, because I know he deletes a lot of his tweets, so maybe I missed something here. But this all started because Raj said he didn't understand Wardlow's booking since Double or Nothing last year. And QT responded by telling him that's because you have no understanding of the inner workings of professional wrestling. And it just devolved from there. Neither one of them came out of this looking good. I know QT trains a lot of students, and he is well-liked behind the scenes in AEW. He was always Cody's guy, and that was a big knock on him. But he does a lot of things behind the scenes, and he's a well-liked guy. But if you are going to push back on people who have an issue with Wardlow's booking since Double or Nothing... I would hit back with one very simple question. All I need to do is ask one question. Is Wardlow better off today than he was in May of 2022? And if the answer is no, then guess what? It is a perfectly valid criticism.
And nobody in their right mind could argue that Wardlow is better off today than he was a year ago. You would have to be drinking so much of the Kool-Aid, my God, with all that sugar, Wilford Brimley would rise from the dead to sell some diabetes testing supplies to you. QT has not made an appearance on Dynamite in three months. And and it's QT Marshall. I mean, when he is on TV, he's there to get other people over. So it made for a very flat finish. And it is shameful to see how far Wardlow has fallen in just one year. A year ago this past week, when he left that Dynamite Diamond ring on the mat for CM Punk to use on MJF in their dog collar match, Wardlow was white hot. The fans... They were ready to embrace him as just this next big thing. And after that that whole fiasco with MJF over Double or Nothing weekend in Vegas, it has been nothing but down for Wardlow. What should have been the biggest moment of his career was totally overshadowed. Then he won the TNT title, and he had one of the worst runs that anyone has ever had with that title. Only Scorpio Sky's run was worse. They beat him for the belt at full gear. Then Joe beat him again and cut off his ponytail. And I think around that period, he had some injuries he was dealing with. But again, they beat him. They cut his ponytail off. He wins the title back. Then he has his car broken into, which could always end up being an angle. I don't think it is, but who knows? Maybe it ends up being an angle. And has the belt stolen. And then he immediately loses the championship to Powerhouse Hobbs. Now he's back in the chase spot again. And maybe he'll win it back, but look... What is it even going to mean if he does? If Wardlow beats Hobbs at double or nothing and wins back the TNT title, who cares? Who cares? Does it mean anything? For Hobbs' sake, I hope Tony Khan does better by him than he did with Wardlow. I'm going to reserve judgment on Hobbs and QT as a pairing until I see how it plays out. Apparently, we're getting a QTV segment on Dynamite this Wednesday. I don't know. that That's his new gimmick now. QTV. I don't know if that's QAnon or what that is. I guess we'll find out together. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial, LLC, member SIPC. Brian Danielson was not there after his loss to MJF in the Ironman match. But they aired a great post-revolution promo he did backstage. Dried blood on his face, nearly in tears. Said, I wanted to teach my kids if you love something, you gotta fight for it. And what I realized is that Max is right. My whole career was about fighting and never giving up. And when I woke up from being unconscious, my first instinct was to fight. And as I was fighting, I realized I couldn't feel my arms. And my left leg had no strength anymore. And when Max said after Revolution he wouldn't be able to play with his kids anymore, I realized he was right. I was putting myself before my family. More than tapping out, that made me more ashamed than anything else. 
I think it's time for me to go home. Really good stuff that put over how the loss impacted him when so many matches today, it's just on to the next, or somebody comes out and they're smiling and it doesn't matter. This loss mattered to Brian Danielson. So much so that he's going to take some time off and, and figure out what his next step is going to be. I think he takes a couple of months off, comes back in time for a match at Forbidden Door. I don't even know that he's really needed at Double or Nothing. He can come back for the pay-per-view that uh, I'm sure we're going to have Forbidden Door in June. Maybe a match with Zack Sabre Jr. He was supposed to wrestle him at Forbidden Door last year. He didn't get cleared in time. Maybe they do the match this year. I really like the Ruby Soho promo on Wednesday in the ring with Renee. This was her Why Ruby Why promo coming out of her heel turn at Revolution. Blaming the fans for creating this monster. She pointed out that her first title match in AEW at Grand Slam a couple of years ago was against Britt Baker. All right, an AEW homegrown. And when Britt beat her, the fans were thrilled. And this is at a time when Britt was a heel. And the people cheered. Fast forward to the semifinals of the Owen Hart tournament last May, where she wrestled another homegrown talent in Chris Statlander. And after she beat Stat, the fans booed her out of the building. Booed Ruby, that is, out of the building. Then at Revolution, when their favorite homegrown star Jamie Hayter pinned her, she realized at that moment that nobody was ever going to come to her defense. Nobody was ever going to be mad when she lost. And she's not the only one not to be appreciated. She said AEW didn't even have the decency when Tony Storm won the women's title to call her the champion. They had to call her the interim champion. And then Soraya came out of retirement and all the fat, neck-bearded, mouth-breathing trolls came after her. They've been outcasts since the day they came into AEW. That's their new name, by the way. They're calling them the outcasts. She said that uh, they came here to help rebuild the women's division. You can't rebuild on broken foundation. You can only demolish that foundation and start new. And she's absolutely right about the crowd reaction she got in those matches. And it was nice to see them tie that fact into this uh, story here that all those matches came against AEW originals. Britt Baker, Chris Statlander, Jamie Hayter. So if you're you're wondering why would they have such animosity towards the, the homegrown talent, now we know. Right? That's a valid explanation for why she would be so pissed off and feel the way that she feels. And and would feel underappreciated. You can understand her justification. This was better than anything that we have heard from Soraya or Tony Storm up to this point. The problem is still the whole NWO cosplay thing with the spray paint. I would have them ditch that and just do their own thing. The concept of them being outsiders is fine. Because they are, in a way. But the spray paint stuff is just totally lame. Now, they're in Winnipeg this Wednesday with the House of Black defending their trios titles against the Elite and the Jericho Appreciation Society. You knew Jericho and Omega would be on that card, given where they're going to be. Hangman Page teams with Evil Uno and Canada's own Stu Grayson. They're bringing back Stu for one night to fight the Blackpool Combat Club, John Moxley, Claudio Castagnoli, and Wheeler Yuta. Double J goes for the gold against Orange Cassidy. MJF is giving himself another bar mitzvah. I am very disappointed I never got my invite. It must have been lost in the mail. He gets no mazel tov from me. And Jade Cargill has issued an open challenge to any whack-ass Canadian who wants to step up to take her TBS title. On the Wednesday live stream, the name I threw out there, the one name I threw out, was Taya Valkyrie, who's from Canada. I didn't know exactly what her status was. I know she's been doing stuff with MLW, I think, in Impact. 
But I said Taya. Taya is the first name that came to mind. As it turns out, Taya just finished up with Impact and is believed to be signing somewhere else. And after the way she was used in NXT, I don't know that she would want to go back to WWE right now. So her debuting in Winnipeg all of a sudden seems a lot more likely. Now, we still have no release date for the AEW Fight Forever game. I thought it might come last weekend at Revolution. They put a commercial up and announced the date. Uh, they got their T for Teen rating that they were looking for. Tony said the game itself is finished. And yet, still nothing. Now we may know why that is. In a story on Wrestling Inc., David Bixenspan revealed that paperwork filed with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office a few days before Revolution shows that GCW, Game Changer Wrestling, is formally opposing AEW's Fight Forever trademark, with documents indicating the two sides are currently in settlement talks. The documents include Mike Dawkins, who represents GCW, filing a request on March 1st for a time extension to formally oppose AEW's trademark, as well as the Patent and Trademark Office's approval of the request the very next day, GCW now faces a May 31st deadline. The story says that in the request for the extension, GCW indicated that it needed the uh, the extended deadline, not just so it could further investigate the claim and confer with counsel, but also because it is engaged in settlement discussions with AEW. GCW held its own Fight Forever in January of 2021 as a 24-hour event with no fans in attendance to benefit and showcase indie wrestlers during the COVID-19 pandemic. GCW filed for its own trademark on the name last year, a few months after AEW did the same. And after Tony allowed John Moxley to work all of those GCW shows, he even brought in Nick Gage to work a match on Dynamite. They turn right around and they put the pizza cutter right in the man's back. Sean Ross Sapp says, per GCW... They are not looking to delay the release of the game or get money from AEW. They're looking to make sure they can still use the name in the future for charity shows. That is their position. If they don't reach a settlement, though, I would imagine this could very well result in a further delaying of the game being released. At this rate, I think Grand Theft Auto 6 will be out before the AEW game is. Ah, GTA. You know, GTA Vice City. One of my all-time favorite games. You know what else was a favorite game of mine? There was a game many years ago called Driver. I don't know. I don't know that it turned into a whole like series of games. Maybe it did, but I remember playing the original Driver. I thought, man, that was just the coolest thing. You know what else I think is pretty cool? My Raycons. And this week's episode is sponsored by Raycon. Now, if you're like me, you probably have routines in your life that you stick to, whatever they may be. Maybe it's hitting the gym at the same time every day or eating the same things every week. Whatever whatever they are, it can get boring after a while. What I have found is that the smallest changes to those routines can make the biggest impact. In that same way, you don't need to break the bank to make a purchase that ends up being a big deal. Even the smallest things can make for a big change if it's something you use every day. Like my Raycons. Raycon is premium audio at the perfect price point. I listen to music when I do cardio and... The occasional podcast. This Solomonster guy I sometimes listen to is pretty good. But whether I'm on the elliptical at the gym or I'm taking a walk around the neighborhood, I need to have my Raycons in my ears if I want to get a good calorie burn going. My Raycon everyday earbuds have become an important part of my routine. And Raycons start at half the price 
of other premium audio brands. Raycon also makes you feel good about what you're spending your money on. They offer buy now, pay later options, and every purchase has an easy and free return guarantee. So you've got nothing to lose. With my Raycons, I love their custom gel tips, which give me a comfortable in-ear fit. Their noise isolation, which lets me block out outside noise. They're also uh, water and sweat resistant. And I love that I can get eight hours of playtime out of them on a single charge. There's a reason why they have over 50,000 five-star reviews. So ready to buy something small with a big impact? Go to buyraycon.com slash solomonster today to get 15% off your Raycon order. That's buyraycon.com slash solomonster to score 15% off. Buyraycon.com slash solomonster and use the code solomonster at checkout to get yourself 15% off. Fightful Select reported this week that Brian Cage, currently one-third of the Ring of Honor six-man tag team champions, may soon be testing out free agency. His AEW deal was said to be up by sometime in mid-February, but Tony Khan was looking to extend that deal through at least June for time that he missed due to injury at the very beginning of his run. And he has reportedly been offered a contract extension with terms comparable to his current deal and even has veteran voices like Chris Jericho advocating for him behind the scenes to stay. But despite this, he has shown hesitation in re-upping with the company. I mean, look, the man sat home for like a year. He couldn't buy himself television time if he offered to pay for it. It's not hard to understand why he would be hesitant to commit to any kind of extension. Only in recent months did Tony Khan start using him again. For now, the two sides have agreed to work together through the Ring of Honor Supercard of Honor show on March 31st, where it is expected that he and his embassy partners will be defending their world six-man tag team titles. And if Tony Khan thinks that Brian Cage may be headed for the exit door, that could spell the end of the embassy as champions on that show. WWE is said to have shown interest in Cage and are open to having talks with him should he become a free agent. Brian Cage has every right to push back on signing another deal with AEW. He is 39 years old. It is clear that he has reached his ceiling in AEW. I mean, when when he does appear on the show, they use him primarily for jobs. He's not going any higher than he already is. Now he's not even on AEW television. Tony Khan is using him exclusively for Ring of Honor. And I doubt very seriously that he wants to be in Ring of Honor if he thinks that he could be possibly making WWE money. I've heard him say that he is... I've heard him say in interviews, he's not a big guy. He's not a big guy, he's a body guy. And that's true. He's not a big guy, like a tall guy. He, he's got a lot of muscle mass, and it could be deceiving, but he's only about six feet tall. Whatever he is or isn't doing, I, I don't know. Would that be an issue in WWE? Yeah, it could be. It could be. And I'll tell you what else could be an issue. His in-ring style. Years ago, when he was in developmental and they let him go... They said that he was uh, a little too indie. And he does work that sort of indie, you know, Young Bucks type of style. And maybe WWE looks at him with his size and tries to change that. I mean, it wouldn't be the first time they told somebody to slow things down or change their style, work safer, don't do this, don't do that. What I do know is that for someone carrying around that much muscle, he is very agile. He can move around. He's not some big muscle head who can barely move. But his promos are still his Achilles heel. He's just not very good at them. 
I think that could be easily remedied by pairing him up with somebody who could do the talking for him. And I, I think Robert Stone would be a good person to fill that role. He's been working with Von Wagner in NXT. Pair Stone up with Brian Cage. Let Stone do the talking and let Cage do his thing in the ring. You know, Lucha Underground is still where Brian Cage flourished the most and had the most success. I saw his work in Impact, but I, I liked him more in Lucha Underground. I think he would at least have a shot in WWE. He has no shot if he stays in AEW. If Tony Khan saw something in him to where he was going to really push him at a serious level, he would have done something with him by now instead of sitting him at home for a year and then sticking him in Ring of Honor. Like Wayne Gretzky said, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. If he wants to take that shot in WWE and there's interest in him, I think he should take the shot. This is the same company that years ago was going to give him a shot in NXT and then change their mind and texted him that he was average at best. And they suddenly weren't interested anymore. So I don't know where his head is at on that, if he even wants to go there after you know what they said to him last time. But if he does, I'm just saying, now would be the time to take that shot. And on the subject of Ring of Honor, this week was the second episode of the new Ring of Honor. I did watch it. Mark Briscoe came out on Rampage on Friday. Let's back up a little bit here. Mark Briscoe came out on Rampage Friday night to pitch an idea for the Ring of Honor World Tag Team titles at Supercard of Honor that they should go out and find the best tag teams on the planet, get a ladder, and do a Reach for the Sky ladder match to crown new tag team champions. And then he introduced the Lucha Brothers as the first entrance in the match. I think that's a fine idea. But if you're pitching the best teams on the planet, or the best teams that Tony Khan has under contract, and you're not including the, and you are including, I should say, the Lucha Brothers in it, then why not add FTR? Add the Young Bucks, right? Both of them are former Ring of Honor tag team champions. Have the Lucha Brothers in there, have FTR in there, have the Young Bucks in there. You've got Aussie Open on the Ring of Honor roster, the Kingdom. Roosh and Dralistico, they wrestled on the show this week. That's six teams right there. I don't think you need more than that. I would rather see Mark Briscoe go the singles route for now and eventually challenge Claudio for the world title. The only way that I would want to see him, you know, as far as tagging and like a tag team environment would be tagging with FTR or the Lucha Bros to go after the trios titles in AEW. FTR because it would just be so perfect. Uh, or the Lucha Brothers, because it was fun to watch the three of them as a trio on the Revolution pre-show. Either team would work. Mark Briscoe and either one of those teams going after the trio's belts at some point would be fine with me. But in Ring of Honor, after winning the tag team titles 13 times with his brother, I don't see what is to be gained by finding a different partner. I mean, to do what? To win them for a 14th time? <laughs> it just Why? So, hopefully... The long-term plan is to keep him as a single, because he is going to be a single right now. not saying that Tony Khan's putting him in a tag team. I'm just saying I think that this is what he needs to be doing. Now, they're running Supercard of Honor in L.A. on WrestleMania weekend. They already have 3,300 tickets sold. And that's with what? Only probably a couple of matches made official so far? That's a healthy number for Ring of Honor. We know Claudio is going to defend the title against Eddie Kingston, but that match is not official yet. Samoa Joe is going to be defending his television title against Mark Briscoe. And you've got the ladder match. And so far, that's it. There's another big match likely taking place, but that will not be... I won't even say announced. That won't be teased 
until episode three this week, so I don't want to give away any spoilers. But I watched the second episode of Ring of Honor, which had, I thought, an excellent main event for the women's championship with Athena beating Willow Nightingale. But nine matches, half of which were squashes or filler, is too much. So they're still trying to find, I think, that uh, that sweet spot. I, I hope they'll get there. Nine matches, half of which is filler, is just not, I don't think that's sustainable. They set up the next television title match for Samoa Joe after his win over Tony Deppin. Mark Briscoe came out to accept his call for a new challenger, so that's that's going to be fun. Wheeler Yuta retained his pure championship over Timothy Thatcher. They had a very good match with Yuta using an illegal closed fist. It's illegal under pure rules. The referee did not see it. He locked on an octopus hold in the ropes for the submission. Yuta then cut a promo after the match was over, likening being part of the Blackpool Combat Club to being on the 96 Bulls. And boy, is that going to piss people off. When when he's in there, he's out there comparing John Moxley to Michael Jordan. Oh, the rage. I can just see it now. And he kept referring to the other three members of the group. So I guess Brian Danielson is technically still considered part of the Blackpool Combat Club, even though if you watch AEW television, you would never know it. But he took issue with the New Japan LA Dojo students. And then Clark Connors came out to challenge him to a match this Thursday I know where this is going because, again, I saw a spoiler and you could probably figure it out yourself if you just think about it. Just stop and think about it with Yuta mentioning the dojo, who trains people at that dojo. I'll leave it at that. Uh, the Aussie Open win over Tracy Williams and Rhett Titus was very good. And uh, as I said, the main event was excellent. I would go so far. I would go so far as to say that it is the second best women's match I have seen so far this year. Second only to the Mercedes against Kyrie match of Battle in the Valley. Athena and Willow Nightingale went out there. They had a hell of a match with Athena going over. I don't know who Athena defends against now. I'm kind of surprised they did the match here and didn't save it for Supercard of Honor. I mean, they already had two other title matches on this show. They had Samoa Joe defending his TV title and they had Yuta putting his pure title on the line. I don't know that they had to put the women's championship on the line on this show. They didn't have to do that, but I'm glad they did. They had an excellent match. Some other news and notes. MLW, which filed an antitrust lawsuit against WWE in January of last year, the antitrust portion of which was dismissed a few weeks ago, had three weeks in which to amend their lawsuit and refile it. On Monday, the last possible day they could do so, they filed a 53-page amended complaint bringing the total to 444 pages. I will I will take the Cliff Notes version, please. And in response to the court's demand for more evidence of their antitrust claims, MLW says that WWE owns 92% of the total wrestling market, with AEW controlling 6% and everyone else fighting for the remaining 2%. MLW claims they are at risk of losing their deal with Real, and this might be the biggest news coming out of this thing, they are at risk of losing their deal with Reels, which they only announced last month because of an exclusivity clause WWE has with Peacock, which just announced its own deal with Reels to carry a live feed of the channel. That's going to have to be blacked out on Tuesday nights when Reels airs MLW. It was then reported that the MLW deal with Reels, if you remember, uh, I talked about it last week, is ending or possibly going to be ending next month after 10 episodes. And when asked about that, 
Reels did not confirm nor did they deny those reports. But the suit says through WWE's predatory conduct that MLW was at risk of its business being irreparably destroyed. It would seem to me that uh, NBC Universal, which owns Peacock and made the deal with WWE, they would bear some responsibility in that as well. If uh, MLW has a problem with them having an exclusivity clause, I don't see how they can put that all on WWE. The filing also includes WWE's effort to block Ring of Honor from running Madison Square Garden during WrestleMania weekend in 2018 as further proof of its predatory practices and says, in a naked attempt, and by the way, was it 2018 or 2019? I thought that was 2019. But anyway, in a naked attempt to restrain competition through the abuse of its market power, WWE, through Paul Levesque, its then-executive vice president, called MSG to insist that MSG cancel the show with Ring of Honor and New Japan Pro Wrestling. Unable to resist the pressure from the industry behemoth, MSG succumbed and withdrew from the ROH agreement and canceled the ROH show. While Sinclair threatened to sue Madison Square Garden over their agreement and the show was rescheduled, ROH and New Japan were forced to incur significant legal expense to vindicate their legal rights and defend against WWE's anti-competitive behavior. A smaller competitor without the support of Sinclair may not have been able to resist such pressure and incur the necessary legal expenses to vindicate its rights. And MLW also mentions that WWE blocked AEW from running the Heritage Bank Center in Cincinnati, Ohio in 2019 and pre-pandemic in 2020. MLW also stated that former WWE talent relations executive Canyon Seaman (laughs) allegedly encouraged Swerve Strickland to get out of his then-existing MLW contract to sign with WWE, and that WWE hired Davey Boy Smith Jr. away from the company, but instead of utilizing him, only booked him in an untelevised dark match. They claim the move made it clear WWE's intent was to impair MLW's ability to build up MLW by taking Smith away. That was, that was a weird one. They brought him back to the company. They did nothing with him. And then they let him go. So they may very well be right about that, but that would not be the first time that it's happened in, in wrestling. WWE could point to WCW, hiring people all the time and paying them to sit at home without ever being used. But lastly, regarding AEW, the lawsuit states the promotion has yet to be profitable and that AEW itself has reached out to WWE demanding they not tamper with talents. Tony Khan last year uh, said that AEW was on track to gross over $100 million for the first time in 2022. Uh, That would be the first time in over 20 years since WCW that any wrestling promotion not named WWE has done that. But that doesn't necessarily mean they were profitable, although I'm not sure how MLW would know that. But WWE lawyer Jerry McDevitt said in response to the filing, it is the same old stuff repackaged to look different. We will be moving to throw it out for good this time. And he also wondered how MLW could possibly even know some of the things they alleged in the suit and that parts of it seem more about AEW than MLW. So now we wait to hear the court's response if this satisfies the evidence they felt the suit was lacking. Uh, My guess is that it ends the same way it did before. You know, not that MLW doesn't make some valid points. They do. And uh, WWE has absolutely screwed over and tried to screw over other promotions before. They've been doing it for years. But I don't know that there's enough in the amended suit to change their minds. 
And sad tweet this week. I was tempted to give it to QT and Raj, but sad tweet goes to Ric Flair, who was not happy about comments made by Dutch Mantel on his Storytime with Dutch podcast. It started with Dutch reacting to comments that Flair made on his podcast about his retirement match last year that Conrad Thompson promoted and right, he was teaming with Andrade against Jeff Jarrett and Jay Lethal. He was asked about nearly winning the worst match of the year honors in the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Awards, which, for all the people who shit on them and claim they mean nothing, boy, they sure do cause a lot of controversy every year and get a lot of people talking about them. But Flair's match would have had top honors this year locked up, but lost out to Vince McMahon's match with Pat McAfee at WrestleMania, which was, which was terrible. So Flair heard this, right? He responded to the news on his podcast and he said, I'll take that because it was the shits. It was the shits because I made a mistake in not hydrating. Let them have it again. No, I mean, I'm serious. I think about it all the time. Let me have the match again. Because the one thing I never thought about was to keep myself hydrated, which I found out my doctor told me the other day. I just went to get my heart tested and all that. He's my new doctor here in Tampa. So he's reading my medical records. He goes, you drink 9 to 12 beers a day. The idea that you do that every day is that I'm looking at your blood work. All I can say is that if you're going to keep drinking like that, you have to stay a little more hydrated. That's the only thing. So just drink more water. He said, I assume you won't quit drinking. I said, you got that shit right. And he said, just drink more water. The man is 73 years old and probably went into the match half drunk. If he's drinking 9 to 12 beers a day, there's no way he wasn't drinking before he went to the ring that night. Now, maybe for Ric Flair, he, he doesn't get drunk because his body is used to it by now. But there ain't no fucking way he went to the ring that night without at least having a few drinks. Then he got defensive about all the people who criticized the match and his performance and called it, you know, it was disgusting. His response to this was to boast about how much money he made from it. He said, I don't pay any attention to that. You know what I say to that? I made $300,000. Go fuck yourself. That's right. I made $300,000 disgusting you. Disgust yourself for three hundred grand. How about that, motherfuckers? That's really all it's ever about with Flair, is the money. His response is to flaunt how much money he made off the marks. And tell anybody who disagrees to go fuck themselves. So Dutch, on his podcast, was asked about this. And this is what he said. I've had people write me and, seriously, people thought he was going to die. I think he passed out a time or two in there. He doesn't even remember it. Ric Flair now is trying to leave a legacy and he should have left it alone or changed a lot of the things in that match because his legacy now is tarnished. I don't know. Ric Flair is full of shit and always has been. Flair couldn't help himself and took to Twitter to post a picture of Dutch with a message. Thank God they used the word veteran and didn't call you a legend. Just a miserable old wrestler trying to make a buck. And by the way, you never had a legacy to begin with. Woo. He puts woo at the end of every tweet. It's like Hulk Hogan putting HH. He then followed up with a second tweet. I just made you more famous than you'll ever be from a single tweet. Woo. Calling Dutch a miserable old wrestler trying to make a buck is what we call projection, boys and girls. Dutch said nothing wrong. 
Flair looked pathetic out there. Watching him in that ring was one of the saddest things I've ever seen. Barely able to move, trying to get oxygen into his lungs, and by his own admission, he passed out. He passed out twice during that match. Has no memory of the end of the match. After the match, he said he had six beers in his hand, and Undertaker, it was either Undertaker or his doctor, took them away from him and handed him a Gatorade to drink instead. Imagine after that match, thinking, you know what I need right now? Half a dozen beers. That ought to get me back up on my feet. I'm surprised when they take blood from the man, he's got anything other than Sam Adams coursing through his veins. He attacks anyone who has even the slightest criticism. He did it to Jim Ross a few months ago. Jim Ross has called Ric Flair the greatest wrestler to ever lace up a pair of boots. Attack JR for comments he made about him in the Dark Side of the Ring episode on the plane ride from hell. Flair said JR lost every bit of credibility he ever had with him in his life. Because JR said, sometimes you need to know when to walk away from Ric Flair. Flair said, WWE learned to walk away from JR. I'm going to the 30th anniversary of Raw. Do you think he is? Woo. A few months ago, he went hard at Shane Douglas. And I know Shane Douglas in the past, he's not had very nice things to say about Ric Flair. But those comments are from years and years ago. Shane, I think, was he was probably doing a shoot interview. He asked, or was asked, about Flair. This was in December. This was before the holidays. And, I mean, it wasn't flattering, the things that he said about Flair's final match. And about Flair's drinking. But he seemed sincere enough. In, and I think part of it also was he shared a story about a convention appearance that Flair made. And I think it was a relative of Shane's was at the show. He might have been Rick's driver and claimed he had him stop at the bar. I don't know. He told some kind of story. But in the end, and he seemed sincere in saying this, he said that his Christmas wish was for Flair to find peace in his life and be able to enjoy it with his grandkids. Flair heard about this. And he went on a rant about how Shane just can't get over me after 30 years. This from the man who still won't shut up about how Jim Hurd tried to ruin his career. And about all the horrible things Eric Bischoff did to him in the late 90s, 25 fucking years ago. So he shamed Shane Douglas for working at a Target store, which he did many years ago. And then he went back to teaching. But he worked at a Target once, so he felt the need to point that out. This is what the man does. And when other wrestlers say nice things about him, he's always very quick to bring that up and say, oh, you know, so-and-so said something very nice about me. Like he's constantly seeking validation, but he acts like he doesn't pay attention or care about what other people say about him. Bullshit. One of the greatest of all time and also the most insecure. Ric Flair strikes again and wins this week for said tweet. It seems like he realized he made an ass out of himself. Either that or somebody got to him, because last night Flair posted another tweet calling for a truce with Dutch. Saying, Dutch, let's just agree to hopefully growing old reluctantly but gracefully. We as old veterans need to be united, not at odds. Look at that. A sober moment. He must have been hydrating. NXT hit a roadblock on Tuesday. With a big main event signed for Stand and Deliver next month, Shawn Michaels picking an opponent for Grayson Waller that was not Dragon Lee, and Roxanne Perez defending her women's championship against Mako Satomura, but leaving the building on a stretcher. First, let's talk about Dragon Lee. Dragon Lee did appear on the show. He was shown in his mask in the crowd, 
and was introduced under that name, so hopefully they let him keep it. I have no problem with the way they introduced him. I know some people did. I mean, look, they've done that with lots of other people before. Usually they would do it on their takeover shows. Uh, but I would rather they introduce him now and get him on the card at Stand and Deliver against somebody rather than wait another three weeks and then show him waving in the crowd. He made his in-ring debut at the NXT house show in Florida last night against Carl Fredericks, who left New Japan last year, signed with WWE in January. Now he goes by the name Eddie Thorpe. How about Dragon Lee? Here's an idea. How about Dragon Lee accepting Wesley's open challenge for the North American Championship? Lee against Lee at Stand and Deliver. That would be incredible. I would open the show with that. We had Tony D'Angelo beating Dijak in the first ever Jailhouse Street Fight. And I had heard some good things about this before I watched it. I didn't I didn't watch the show until Thursday. And I don't really see what the big deal was about it. <laughs> they had a, they had a good brawl, but I didn't think it was anything special, and I thought the stipulation was actually kind of dumb. Uh, I guess really it's just a vertical casket match, if you think about it. Only instead of slamming the lid shut, you had to slam the cage door shut and lock it. It was one of those experimental matches like uh, they did the Iron Survivor match a few months ago, which was a huge success. This one I don't think is is probably worth doing again. Braun Breaker tagged with the Creeds to beat Jinder Mahal, Veer, and Sanga. I thought it was a fun brawl uh, with Brutus. Brutus Creed picking up the win for his team with the Doomsday Flying Butterball off the top. That gives the Creeds and Indu Share each a win over each other on television. I assume that leads to a third match with a stipulation at Stand and Deliver. Grayson Waller had Shawn Michaels in the ring for the Grayson Waller effect. I will never not sing along to that song whenever Sean comes out. He could be 70 years old with Lord Tenzai pushing him down to the ring at the PC in a wheelchair. I'll still be singing Sexy Boy. Waller won me over when he said he was always a Brett guy and not a Sean guy. Smart kid. Waller's issue with Sean is that he feels he's being held back. There's a complaint we've never heard in wrestling before. Sean said he gave Waller a cage match at Vengeance Day and he lost. And maybe he should be blaming the man he sees when he looks in the mirror. Waller said that Braun or Carmelo probably going to be called up soon. Why not him? He hates this place. He hates the people in it. And if Shawn Michaels is pissed off at him, then he should do something about it. And he challenged Shawn Michaels to a match at Stand and Deliver. And Shawn took off his sport coat. He said that he's been retired for over a decade. I mean, that's okay. If I, if I was part of that awful match in Saudi Arabia, I would want to pretend it never happened also. He said that he's had the greatest in the world wanting to have their dream match against him at WrestleMania, banging down his door year after year. He keeps having a lot of money offered to him to do it. And now Grayson Waller is just the latest one doing the same. He would love to whoop his ass, but there's another man who bleeds NXT and wants Waller even more. And Johnny Gargano came out to his terrible new music. He cleared Waller from the ring. He's going to be back on the show this Tuesday for a promo to speak for the first time. Michaels and Waller had a really strong exchange. I thought Grayson went head-to-head on the mic with him more than held his own. And the Gargano surprise is one I wasn't expecting. I thought it would be Dragon Lee, but Gargano makes sense because it was Waller who sent him packing from NXT. And given what Gargano is doing on Raw right now which isn't much, being able to see him back in the ring, 
on on this show. Like this is going to be the closest thing to a takeover stage without the takeover name that NXT has had. If we get the old Johnny Wrestling back from the black and gold era, he'll give Grayson Waller the best match of his life. Whether whether Waller wins or loses almost isn't even relevant. He's going to go out there and he's going to give that kid the best match that he has ever had. And it'll give Johnny a big stage because right now he's got nothing. He's got no program heading into WrestleMania. He probably will not be at WrestleMania. I'm assuming if, if Triple H keeps the Andre Battle Royal, they've been doing it on television the last couple of years. So it's very likely Johnny Gargano will not even make the WrestleMania card. This will be his WrestleMania. The first Gigi Dole and JC Jane match was very disappointing. Uh, there was a spot late in the match where Gigi was down and JC climbed to the top rope. To do what? I have no idea because Gigi was three quarters of the way across the ring. So unless she had a, a jetpack strapped on, there was no way she was reaching her. Uh, this had very little heat considering their history and how personal Gigi's promo was. Gigi got an abdominal stretch. She swung backwards, almost like a crucifix bomb for the win, which came out of nowhere. And then after the match, JC attacked her, wrapped a chair around her neck. Referees, though, freed her before any damage could be done. So they're obviously going to run this back at Stand and Deliver. I certainly hope they have a better outing there than they did on this show, because I didn't think this was very good. Then they had Braun Breaker come to the ring, unannounced, with no entrance music, which was a nice touch. To call out Carmelo Hayes. And Hayes came out by himself. No Trick Williams. He got in the ring. The two went face to face. Braun challenged him to a match at Stand and Deliver. A battle of the stars that's been building for 18 months. Since the 2.0 relaunch. He said he's been keeping tabs on Melo. And Hayes said he's been doing the same with Braun. It didn't matter where on the card Braun's matches were. He always made it a point to watch them. And Braun remembered the two of them having a meeting with Shawn Michaels at the start of all this where he picked the two of them to be the faces of the new NXT. He said, there's only one place left to go. It's me and you. And I thought this was very effective. I like what they did here. This was not about heel and babyface. You know, Hayes wasn't acting as smug as he usually does. There was no Trick Williams distraction or attack from behind or anything like that. I think it's the right approach. I think it's the right way to build this match up as... This big first-time-ever clash between the two hand-picked stars to build this version of NXT around. The two biggest stars they have and the two best names on the brand. You know, may the best man win. I like that. It's kind of like Austin and Rock, honestly, trying to one-up each other going into WrestleMania 17, only without the dumb Deborah storyline. They headline the show with Roxanne Perez beating Mako Satomura to retain her NXT Women's Championship. They had a very good match with a big post-match angle. Mako hit her Scorpio uh, Scorpio Rising uh, step-up kick to the back of the head. But Roxanne was close enough to get her foot on the bottom rope for the break. She tried for another. Perez, though, reversed it with a roll-up for the win. The story they told coming into this match was how hard Mako worked Roxanne over during their training sessions. It was a very... Unusual way of building up a title match where you have the challenger training the champion, like her coach. Which I think is what the story is going to be to explain what happened after the match. Roxanne passed out from exhaustion. She collapsed in the ring. Referees ran out to check on her, called for the paramedics. Booker T left the announce desk to go check on her. You know, she was a pupil of Booker's, so that was a nice touch to add some realism to it. Shawn Michaels was out there. 
They gave her oxygen. They strapped her to a gurney. They carried her out of the building into an ambulance. They did the Shawn Michaels angle from 1995. Booked by Shawn Michaels and with an appearance by Shawn Michaels at the very end. This was the Shawn Michaels show. He's been pulling out his greatest hits recently. First, the barbershop window recreation with Toxic Attraction a few weeks ago. Now the post-concussion angle from Raw with Owen Hart. And again, it plays into Roxanne's promo from earlier in the show where she talked about never having trained harder for anything in her life than she did for this match. When it was over, she was spent. And now I wonder if this is what they'll sort of use to protect her if she loses her title to Tiffany Stratton at Stand and Deliver. You know, that she's just coming off of this exhausting match and she collapsed and, you know, she's she wants to defend her title at Stand and Deliver. She's going to go through with it, but, you know, maybe she's not 100% and, and that's why she loses the championship. The video of her collapsing did a million views on WWE's YouTube channel. That has to be more than any NXT video has ever done on that channel, I would have to think. Tokyo Sports reported this week that NXT star Saray will be leaving WWE after her contract expires. She is scheduled to hold a press conference tomorrow at midnight Eastern Time on Instagram Live to announce that she will be resuming her wrestling career in Japan. Fightful Select was able to confirm the report, including that Saray has bookings elsewhere. However, WWE has yet to comment about her status publicly. We are told the beginning of the end was actually early last year when many of her biggest supporters were let go from NXT. Sources within the brand said that she never factored into a consistent or major creative fashion after that. We are told by the spring of 2022, the writing was on the wall. William Regal's departure was one that many pointed to as a turning point. Those who frequent the Performance Center said that she had not been around in ages and they were never given any answers about what happened to her when they would ask. It was widely accepted within the company that the creative given to her was outright bad. It was also noted that those within the company said that Saray took great pride in helping Tiffany Stratton along during her uh, short feud with her and seemed to think a lot of the up-and-coming talent. Though there was a language barrier, we have heard no issues in her dealing with anybody and only heard positive things about her from others at the PC. Saray signed with WWE in 2020. Uh, But because of the pandemic, she didn't actually debut on NXT until the following year. After the 2.0 makeover, they gave her, they gave her a makeover as a schoolgirl wearing pigtails and a magical necklace that her grandmother gave her. And she would transform during her entrance before coming to the ring. This was after she had that rotten match on 205 Live with Lash Legend that was so terrible, she fled the country. Wasn't even Saray's fault. But she fled the country. She went into hiding. For about a month, she actually went back to Japan. And when she came back, they turned her into Sailor Moon. And I actually feel like I was one of the few at the time who was willing to give the gimmick a chance and didn't completely shit on it at first. Uh, I thought maybe she would come back, you know, with with everybody thinking she was a babyface. But then when she finally re-debuted, she would go and bash people over the head with that medallion... <laughs> You know, from the necklace, and she would win her matches that way. Like a heel saray. I still think that could have worked, right? They play these vignettes. She's all bubbly and smiling and, you know, total babyface. Only we come to find out she's not really a babyface at all. But, um, you know, they tried to flesh out her character because she had none. 
So they had the right intentions. I don't think they intentionally tried to sabotage her, but then they just completely gave up on her. Thankfully for her, she's only 26 years old, so she's got plenty of time to get her career back on track. Let's get to some of your mailbag questions here. You can always email me, thesalamonster at gmail.com. Please include your name and where you are from when you write in. Got a lot of uh, international flavor this week. Joey in Melbourne, Australia. I had a thought and I wanted your take on this. Chris Jericho has talked about planning his stories and presenting them to Tony Khan. He said that he usually presents his storylines with week-to-week scenarios and tries to extend them out as long as he can. Yeah, tell me about it. Uh, This got me thinking, is this uh, or is the reason we are not seeing some guys on AEW TV due to the fact they aren't uh, presenting any of their own ideas and the guys we do see on TV are presenting ideas? When AEW first started, there was a big fuss around the fact they don't have writers. Wrestlers were encouraged to present ideas to Tony Khan. I'm not trying to defend Tony or AEW creative, but I think wrestlers may have to take some responsibility for their own TV time. The issue may be as simple as Tony is giving wrestlers who present their ideas a chance over guys who are waiting to be given something. It gives him less work to do rather than coming up with ideas for everybody on the roster. What do you think? It's possible. I mean, look, I think that presents uh, a whole host of challenges. There are pros and cons, right? There are pros and Tony cons uh, to this type of booking. On the one hand, if you don't have an army of writers, I I don't think you need an army of writers, by the way. I don't have an issue with having a small staff of writers. But this idea, like WWE, they they ended up these these massive writing teams where they'll have these meetings that fill an entire room. I just don't I don't think that's necessary. But the downside of that, even though that gives people more creative freedom in AEW, there has to be some sort of cohesion on the shows, or you have to make sure that certain stories don't overlap other ones. Or if th- these guys are going to go out and do something that night, that you don't have other people on the show doing a similar thing. And we see that all the time in AEW, especially when it comes to blood and the hardcore stuff. It would be more effective if it was kept to just like one program or one match. And so many times it happens in multiple segments on the show where it just you get kind of numb to it. So I think there's definite downside to just letting people run amok and do whatever they want. Uh, is that part of the issue here? I don't know how much uh, creative input Tony Khan is taking from the talent. I don't know what the percentage of that is. I'm sure people like Jericho or or Moxley, maybe, you know, some of the big names definitely have input into their stories and who they want to work with and where they want to go. Jericho is a little bit different because I don't know. I don't know what's stated in his contract. I know in his contract, he's more than just an in-ring performer. He's also helping behind the scenes. So maybe there's something written into his contract when it comes to how much creative input he has. I do think that people should step up if they have ideas and present them to Tony Khan. How do we know that people aren't presenting ideas to Tony Khan and he's rejecting them? You know, the Miro situation is just, it's just puzzling to me because we have not seen him for so long and we get cryptic tweets and cryptic comments and I'm not hurt, I'm ready, I'm, you know, all these things that we hear and then we have reports that Tony Khan did have creative for him, but... Miro didn't like it, and he turned it down. And in situations like that, I mean, if that's true, then that's on the talent as well. If you're presented with an idea and you don't want to do it, then guess what? You might not be on TV for a while, because we got a lot of other people that we got to worry about. 
So I've given up trying to figure out or really even care about the Miro situation. I'm, I'm kind of over the whole thing, to be honest with you. But is it possible that other talents are not stepping up and presenting ideas or they're presenting terrible ideas because that's not what they do, right? They don't have a creative mind. They're, they're there to perform. Yeah. And that maybe that doesn't get talked about enough. You know, this idea that, well, you know, wrestlers are presenting ideas and they're being rejected. Yeah, maybe because they suck. There are some wrestlers who are not meant to come up with their own creative ideas because they're not very good at it. So who knows how much of that factors into things. Tony Khan does have people helping him with creative. I don't know if you would call them writers or or just people backstage who just kind of bounce ideas off of him. But do I think that more people should be actively involved in what they're doing? Yes. What I'm saying is we don't know what the percentage is of those people who are coming forward with ideas. If they're being listened to or if they're even any good. Again, there's pros and cons to having a system like that, which is very different than how WWE does things. But it's not always a good thing. Uh, Stephen from the Isle of Man, UK. I have a good friend who just actually moved from New York to the Isle of Man. She just got married. Uh, I'm watching WrestleMania 18 and was wondering if there were ever any plans for Kevin Nash to have a match on the card Or did they know he was injured when he came back into WWE? Also, for me, Undertaker's match with Ric Flair is one of my favorite matches of the streak that doesn't really get spoken about as much, unlike the matches that he had later in his career. I was wondering what your favorite matches from the streak were that don't get talked about as much. So I'll take the first question first. I'm not aware of Kevin Nash being injured. I don't know where you're getting that from, if that's something Nash has said. Uh, the reason Nash did not have a match on that WrestleMania card is because they were worried about Scott Hall, who had a match with Steve Austin. And if for some reason Hall was not in a condition to perform in that match, then they would have had Nash step in and wrestle Austin. So that's why he didn't have a match on that show. As far as the uh, streak matches for The Undertaker, I mean, speaking of Nash, yeah, I mean, one of them is the match that Nash had with Undertaker at WrestleMania 12. Uh, I thought they had actually a pretty good match. I haven't watched it in a very long time. That match never gets talked about. And I, I think it was probably one of the better Kevin Nash matches. It wasn't as good as the matches he had with Brett or the match he had with Sean uh, the month after. But uh, it was pretty good. That one doesn't get talked about. Maybe my favorite of the Undertaker, especially the early Undertaker matches that really doesn't get talked about a lot, is the WrestleMania 8 match with Jake the Snake Roberts. I have always, that's always been one of my favorites. I've always liked that match, you know, the tombstone on the floor. So I like that one. And I'll throw one more at you. And this one always gets overshadowed by their later two matches. But I enjoyed the WrestleMania 17 match, the first match. With Undertaker and Triple H. Undertaker wasn't the dead man for those matches. He was the American badass. That one almost never gets talked about. And it it didn't get talked about or brought up at all. In the build to either of his later matches. uh, Triple H's later matches with The Undertaker. Uh, I think because Vince at the time just didn't want to draw attention to the match. And the fact that Undertaker was doing a different gimmick. So that one I would definitely have on the list. Was uh, WrestleMania X7. James from California. I recently came across a list by the Sportster of things that will never happen again at WrestleMania. 
One of them had the multiple locations that they tried at WrestleMania 2. Considering, however, that Mania has two nights, do you feel WWE may consider two locales for two nights with one night at one venue and the next night at another? That sounds like a nightmare. That sounds like a logistical nightmare. And think about the money they would have to spend to build two stages instead of one. Uh, I don't think it seems likely. Could I see them doing it years from now? Yes, I could I could see them doing it. As long as Mania stays two nights, for, you know, sure, yeah, it's possible. But it would have to make sense for them financially. And I just don't see how... I don't see how that benefits them financially any more than the way they do things right now. Chris in Cortland Manor, New York. Buy, sell, or rent on the best dream match left that we have not yet had and could potentially happen in the next calendar year. Kenny Omega against AJ Styles. Kenny Omega against Seth Rollins. Or Brian Danielson against Kazuchika Okada. Oh, I'm going with Danielson and Okada. I've been waiting years for that match. And I think it very well could happen. If, if not at Forbidden Door, I think sometime uh, between Forbidden Door and Wrestle Kingdom next year, I think we we could get Danielson and Okada. Ma- imagine Danielson and Okada at the Tokyo Dome in Japan at Wrestle Kingdom. That would be incredible. So I would go with Danielson and Okada, two of the very best in the world, even today. Uh, I would rent on uh, Omega and Styles, and I would sell on Omega and Rollins. Not that I think it would be a bad match, but I would I would rank that last. And uh, Vincent from Columbus, Ohio. Who is the wrestler you most closely associate with WrestleMania? For me, it's The Undertaker because of the streak and the amazing stretch of Mania matches he had from 23 to 29. I know the easy answer is Shawn Michaels, but do you think an argument can be made that it is really The Undertaker? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. When I think of WrestleMania, the names that I think of the most are Undertaker, Shawn Michaels, and Hulk Hogan. Because WrestleMania was really built off the back of Hogan. Maybe that's why he needed 10 back surgeries. And Jacob writes in, I want to say thanks for reading off the email a few weeks ago from the listener who had heart trouble. It really hit home as I've had a lot of health issues over the past year that I am now just getting treatment for. I had another problem come up during treatment that I thought about ignoring since I already have one issue to deal with. But I remembered that email you read and decided to get checked out. Luckily, it is nothing serious, but it is something that needs to be kept up with. So I just want to say thanks to you and the listener whose name I can't remember for sending that in. Uh, that would be Reggie in Iowa, and uh, you're very welcome. I'm glad you got things checked out and that it isn't as serious as it could have been, whatever the issue is. But that's why I shared Reggie's email in the first place, because, you know, if it helps even one person check up on something they otherwise might not, then it's worth it. So, that's going to wrap that up for now. Uh, next Sunday is episode 800 of The Sound Of. I will have done 800 of these things. Of the flagship, at least. Coming up next Sunday. So that's going to be, uh, that's going to be fun. Uh, at this moment, it's, it's going to be a regular episode. It's not going to probably be any different than usual, unless there's something, uh, special or unique I feel like I am compelled to talk about. So I'll see as the week goes on if there's anything and if you have any uh, suggestions. But otherwise, it'll be the same show you've come to 
to know and love every single Sunday. I'm not going to deviate from that. Of course, we'll have all the usual streams back in order this week. There was no stream on Friday because of Hog, but I'll be live on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday talking Raw, Dynamite, and SmackDown. And then back with you for episode 800 of the podcast next Sunday. I also want to just thank all of our new channel members. And a lot of them were uh, the recipients of gifted memberships from a handful of people who I thank the most. We we passed a major milestone in terms of members on YouTube this past week. Uh, I knew that because when I logged into my dashboard, it had a little congratulations message. So that was cool. And uh, I do have other uh, bonus content plans, so... Whether you're gifted or whether you buy a channel membership, I thank you. I hope you'll consider doing so. Uh, I am putting together what will be the next RSPW Rewind. You know, features like that end up going out to everybody, but channel members get early access. You know, when we do more watch-alongs, and I know I have to plan more of those. Open to everybody, but the live chat, members only. And then there are members only features as well. And if you just want to support, you have that option. So I just wanted to say thank you for that. So, be well, stay safe, and I will see you back here for episode 800 of The Sound Off. Until then, take care, guys. The Salamonsters sounds off. We had Asuka going one-on-one with Carmella. Asuka, who's supposed to be some kind of killer if you listen to the commentators. What is the point of refreshing her look and letting her go ahead and do the Kana murder clown makeup and change things up a little bit? And you're having the announcers go out on television every week and say that Asuka's the most dangerous woman in WWE. And it takes her eight minutes to put away Carmella. And then when the match is over, she's acting the same way. She's cutting promos the same way. It's the same person. What makes her any more dangerous now than she was six months ago? I don't get it. She's right back to doing the same shit that she was doing before. So what was the fucking point? The Salamonster sounds off. Each week, bursting with content. Podcasts, predictions, reviews, YouTube live streams, and more. Become a channel member for perks and follow the Salamonster on Twitter at Salamonster. Solo Monster. Solo Monster. Solo Monster sounds off.